chapter 13. And uh, we're going to look at this chapter in very broad strokes uh, today. And that's code for I don't know what everything means in the chapter. So, uh, <laughs> so we're going to look at it in very... Those who are in Cape Traverse this morning will know uh, what I mean by that. But we're going to look at this chapter in very broad strokes. Well, we've said that about other chapters, haven't we? And I've invoked the names uh, very cleverly of some great commentators who said, we just don't know what's going on here in this particular verse. And uh, so I'm happy to uh, stand on their shoulders this morning. But we are definitely able to get a broad picture, a bird's eye view, uh, even though we are not uh, able to uh, clearly define every particular uh, image that we find in this chapter, yet we know by the general thrust of the chapter how that is related to us in other parts of Scripture so that we're able to clearly apply the text for today. Now in this chapter, uh, we see three key figures. And uh, those three key figures are uh, an anti-type they're the opposite of other three figures that we see throughout the book of Revelation. That is the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I've entitled the message, The Unholy Trinity. And what, again, thinking broadly about the Bible, what we find when we look at the New Testament and when we look back into the Old Testament with the eyes of the New Testament, is we see that God is three persons in one. And we see the Trinity at work. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit throughout the Word of God. In, our, in the birth of Jesus, in the life of Jesus, in the death and resurrection of Jesus, there's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That ministry continues down through today in the New Testament church until the time that Jesus comes back. Now, John, in getting us to understand uh, what we are up against, also describes our spiritual foe, the devil, in similar terms. And the language that is used here in Revelation 13 is language that has already been used of Jesus earlier on. And so, the, the beast, the, the dragon will, and the beast will take on names that are properly given to God. And he is uh, accused of blaspheming God by assuming names that can only be given to God. It, he is allowed to do certain works that Jesus was, uh, had done. They could be mimics of what Jesus had done. They could be uh, uh, sorcery, as was done by Simon the sorcerer, or done by uh, the, those in Moses' day, when Moses was demonstrating the power of God before Pharaoh, and the, the Egyptian magicians were allowed to do something similar. Uh, but what we're seeing in this chapter is a the working of God down through the centuries. Again, we're seeing the book of Revelation as the history of the church from the time Jesus was first here 
to the time he comes back and what we can expect in, in the meantime. But we're also allowed, as that window opens by John, to see that the devil is also at work. And that is an undeniable reality of the book of Revelation and of our world. And the principles that he puts forth here in this vision that is given to us are things that have been clearly seen in the past, are clearly seen today, and will continue to be seen in the time which is to come. These are the things which we can expect. And so we have here in this chapter a, a kind of a demonic reflection of the Trinity. As the, the, the dragon, uh, who is symbolized for us, it, uh, it, who, who is symbolized as a dragon, but he is clearly defined in chapter 12 as uh, the, uh, the serpent, the devil, the great one who deceives the whole world. We, we know, we understand who the devil is. But in emulating God, in seeking to copy God and deceive the world, the devil also operates in a kind of a trinity with the dragon, the first beast, and the second beast. Or as it's seen throughout the rest of the book of Revelation, the dragon, the antichrist, and the false prophet. So you have these three working in conjunction together to destroy and to deceive, whereas the Trinity's de desire is to save and to enlighten and to give the truth. So we're able to see then a broad pattern of how this chapter and the world then is falling out. So as the devil is at, as, as God is at work in the world, so the devil is at work in the world. We can see that. We can see that on the news. We can see that in history. We can see that in our own lives. And the Bible does that. It not only shows the devil at work in nations, in governments, in totalitarian uh, uh, groups, but also in individuals. Paul warns that the Corinthians that Satan should not deceive them. Jesus said to Peter, Satan has desired to sift you as wheat individually. Or he said to Satan through Peter, get behind me, Satan, for you desire the things that be of man and not of God. So, for Jesus, for Paul, for John, for the writers of the New Testament, the devil was very much at work. That becomes increasingly emphasized for us in chapter 12. Because of the work of Christ, because of the death resurrection of Jesus, and as we saw last week, because the devil no longer has that place to accuse the saints before God, he is thrown down because the accusations have been answered by the cross, right? All guilt, all accusation against us has been taken away if we believe. That's, a, that's an important qualifier. The accusations still stand if we do not. But if we do, 
The devil has no place of accusation. And because of that, verse 12, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. And so John is equipping us. He's equipping the world through this vision that he has been given to pull the curtain back on what the devil is up to. So that we'll be ready. So that we'll be prepared. And not, as some, to say, this, was all, ha- this all happened during the time of Rome. Or this all will happen at some future time that we don't know about centuries down the road, uh, but it's not something that is really happening today, and so we can go on our merry way and just eat, drink, and be merry. No. Revelation says that these are the things that are, are, are occurring and reoccur in and down through church history, even to the present day. And so the Bible pulls the curtain back on this demonic activity. We've, we've seen the dragon. We've seen Satan directly. Now, we've see, now we see in chapter 13 his agents. I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadem on its horns, and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a, a, a bear's, its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to the dragon gave his, uh, and to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and his great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast and who can fight against it? Now, as you're reading through that, what we're meant to see by John is the anti-type of what God did through Jesus. Jesus, too, is described back in chapter 5 as having seven horns, which spoke of the perfect power of God. The perfect, having seven spirits. The seven spirits of God, which describe the perfect presence of the Spirit of God in Jesus. Spirit of wisdom and understanding and so on. And now, the beast is also given authority. Remember what Jesus said, all authority has been given to me by my Father in heaven and earth. But now the book of Revelation says that the dragon is giving his authority and his throne to the beast, just as the Father gave it to the Son. Just as with the Son, the beast receives this mortal wound, which, which seems to spell his end. But he is revived, and the world wonders and worships the beast. Similar for, similarly for Jesus, he receives that mortal wound on the cross, which spells his end. He goes down into the grave, but he's resurrected. And people who have been given the grace have their eyes open to see, and they marvel, and they worship people from all over the world. 
And, but what John is, see, John is perfectly mirroring what is going on in the life of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and in the, in the dragon, the Antichrist, and the beast, and the, the false prophet, the second beast. And so, here he is described in these ways as this beast arising. He was like a leopard. Uh, its feet like a bear's. Its mouth like a lion's mouth. This is a direct reference back to Daniel. Where Nebuchadnezzar sees this vision of a statue which is made of four parts. Each representing four different kingdoms. The Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, which is symbolized as the leopard, and then the Roman Empire, which has feet of iron. This is what John is directing our attention to. What he sees here is all of that in one beast. And he, Daniel sees the same vision again in chapter 7. What he is describing then is the rise of and fall of these empires down through time. That now, in the New Testament age, we're not looking at simply one empire, but the rising and falling of many empires like in the time of Daniel. So just as over the course of four or five hundred years, you have the rise of all these empires as they persecute the people of God, John is seeing in his vision now this beast which will express itself from the time Jesus comes to the time He returns. And it will, be dis it will be reflected in many different nations, totalitarian regimes, and empires down through the years that strike at the heart of God's people. Strike at the heart of the church as the years go on. And this is what we see here. He receives this mortal wound. And some, again, this is one of those areas which we draw a question mark over because we're, people, commentators, are not exactly sure what this mortal wound is. Some people have described it as uh, um, uh, Nero's uh, um, um, suicide. Uh, others have described it as after the, the reign of Nero, the Roman Empire was thrown into disarray and it seemed to spell its end. But it rose again through the reign of Vespasian and his sons, Titus and Domitian. And with them, in a new revived Roman Empire, the persecution carries on and becomes more intense against the church. Many just see it that way, and that's what I feel uh, best describes it. There's other views, and you might have some. Uh, you may find some, and you're, uh, you're welcome to email me or message me, phone me, however you want. But as I've looked, at, I, I've come to the conclusion that that seems to capture the spirit as we're looking at it broadly over the history of uh, the church. As the beast comes back to life, it, its, its reputation is solidified. Remember, 
Jesus comes back to life, all the Old Testament prophecies are fulfilled and realized. The church, the believers who see and understand who Jesus is, now worship Him unto death. They give their lives for Him. They celebrate Him. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, who died and rose again. You see what they're doing. But now with the beast, they see here is perhaps the empire who seemed to be in its demise after Nero, but now has revived itself. And people are looking at that and saying, look at the glory of Rome. The glory of its architecture. The glory of its government. The glory of its, of its armies. Who can stand against Rome? And they worship the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worship the beast, saying, Who is like the beast and who can fight against it? So the mistake that we would make is simply putting a pin on one event in world history rather than seeing a, an expression of these things down through history. John says, Paul for example, he says that the man of sin will come. Now, the Bible teaches us to expect that at the end of time, there will be this man of sin that will come. An antichrist. Who will be captured in perhaps one person. But John also tells us that many antichrists have gone out into the world. Many who are against Christ. And again, if Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords, then you're going to find the antichrists who go out expressing their hatred of God, their hatred of God's people, through empires and regimes that are ungodly. That's the idea. And those will bring upon themselves divine titles. They will take upon themselves what only belongs to God. And they will be worshipped as divine, as the emperors of Rome were. They saw themselves as, as demigods. They saw themselves as semi-divine. We need look no further than the, the Kims of North Korea, uh, Kim Jong-un and Kim Jong-il, uh, uh, who demanded that they be worshipped by the people. And so there is that re desire to displace God from His throne. He's not Lord. He's not God. He's not Savior. We are. And so people were called upon, look at the glory of Rome. Look at the glory of Caesar. Put away all those false notions about Jesus and about God and, and, and come and see the supremacy of these things. And so as a result, uh, it says, and the beast was given a mouth to utter haughty and blasphemous words. There you see that again. Look at back in, in uh, 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 verse 1. 
with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its head. And here it repeats that. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. We've seen that. We've dis discussed that in previous weeks to show that that is that period of testing. The wilderness time between coming out of sin and the promised land. The ushering in of the kingdom of God at the end of time. The time in which we are now living. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God. Blaspheming His name and His dwelling. That is those who dwell in heaven. And it was, and it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Notice there that constant refrain throughout Revelation, allowed, allowed, allowed. What we're seeing in this reign of terror is nevertheless the sovereignty of God behind it. We saw in the Old Testament how God allowed pagan nations like the Babylonians and the Persians and the Greeks and, and the Philistines even. Though they were evil and motivated by the power of darkness, God used them to judge His own people. Just as in the world today, God is, is able to use even the wrath of Satan himself for His own purposes. And the cross is the perfect picture of that. The cross is the epitome of how God uses the evil of the devil for the good, ultimate good of the world. Jesus could say, this is the hour of the power of darkness. The devil was, as it were, let loose. Working in people. Working in Judas. Working in the religious leaders. Working in the Romans and all the rest of it. And if you looked at that, you would say, this is insane. Who's in charge here? God has left the building. No one is in control here anymore. And when we get to the other side of that, we discover God was in Christ reconciling the world unto Himself. That though they meant it for evil, God meant it for good. This is what we ultimately have to see as we look at this. We have to be wise. We have to be sober when it comes to thinking about how the devil is working in the world. But we cannot despair. For the whole purpose of this book is that we be blessed by it. That we be encouraged by it. Know that God is, though the devil pretends to have all this authority, though he pretends to be in ultimate control, he is not. For we hear those words aloud, aloud, aloud. Just as Judas was aloud. The religious leaders were allowed. The Romans were allowed. But ultimately, it was the, the pleasure of God to put Him to the cross. It was God's purpose. And it's God's purpose to use even the wrath of the devil himself for the good of His people. But the people are called to suffer. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Albeit temporarily. And authority was given over every tribe and people, language, and nation. Notice the echo again with Jesus. Chapter 7. 
I saw before the Lamb people from every nation, tribe, language, and, and so on. Before the Lamb, worshiping Him. Well, here now on earth, as the God of this world is doing His, his bidding, his, his, his worst, for the dragon, for the, for the devil, He is amassing people from every nation and language through His power, through His authority, Everyone whose name was not written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. In other words, there are those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Who because of the work of Jesus in their lives who because of the Spirit of God keeping them and sealing them, do not worship the dragon. Do not worship the Antichrist. And therefore, are eternally safe. Though for the time, they have to suffer. But they are written in the book of life. Their names are there. It's akin to what we saw back in chapter 7. The sealing of God upon the church. They are sealed. They were kept. If anyone has an ear to hear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword, he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Allowed to make war. We, every, I mean... You can look at this and say, I don't get it. I, where, where is that happening? It happens everywhere. In our notes today, we're talking about Nigeria, praying for Nigeria. Where at Christmas time, gunmen came in and killed one. Weeks leading up to that, 54 were, had been, or many, many others had been killed. 54 were uh, uh, taken captive, kidnapped. Prior to this incident, in the week leading up to Christmas, militants attacked the village of Malagum and uh, Kagoro, 43 Christians were killed. Nigeria continues to be the nation where more Christians are killed for their faith than in any other. It's because we often don't occupy ourselves with that kind of news that we find this language distant. And we say, well, hang on, it must be, that must have happened in the first century. Or that's the, that's the time coming way into the future something. No, friends, it's happening now. We are living in the Great Tribulation. This is the Great Tribulation. When you're a Christian nailed to the side of a barn for worshiping Jesus in the Middle East, that is tribulation. When you are a Christian lit on fire at Nero's garden parties, that is Great Tribulation. And that's what the church finds itself in today and over the course of time the antichrist is allowed to make war on all of god's people that's the antichrist then the false prophet then i saw another beast rising out of the earth it had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon and exercised all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worshipped the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. 
It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to the earth in front of the people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived, and so on. Here is the second beast, which later on in chapter 16 and 19 and 20 is called the false prophet. And just as the desire of the Holy Spirit is to direct attention to Jesus, the false prophet's desire is to invoke the worship of the Antichrist. This is his ministry, as it were. And to that end, the the second beast is able to perform signs and wonders to occupy people's minds. And as I said at the beginning, this is something that we've seen in the Bible, whether it's Simon the sorcerer in the early chapter of Acts who did sorcery and people said, this is the hand of God. God is in this man. Or the Egyptian sorcerers and magicians who were able to copycat the works of Moses. Regardless, the false prophet is able to direct people's attention to the worship of the the Antichrist rather than the true and living God. Paul says that the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the works of Satan displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders. And so this third agent is working to direct people's attention away from the true and living God to to these powerful empires, totalitarian, authoritarian regimes that would come saying, our ultimate purpose and our value and our salvation is seen in the state, in the particular dictator rather than in God. So if you look at the history, even in the 20th century, of dictatorships, whether it be the Soviet Union or uh, in China under Mao or any of these places, one of the key characteristics was a denial of free speech, was a destruction of religion, not only the Christian religion, but other religions as well, and a call to serve the leader, the dictator. And so you see, remember in Soviet Russia, Soviet Union, the pictures of Lenin, the statues of Lenin, displayed in huge banners. You go to, uh, uh, you go to Beijing in China and the pictures of, of Mao that were there, leader of the great revolution. And so you see how the false prophet is seeking to convince people to move away from Jesus, to move away from the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, to other earthly governments which have been uh, subverted now by the Antichrist and the false prophet. Tim Chester, a commentator on on Revelation, said it's not hard hard to find parallels today. The personality cult of the supreme leader in North Korea, which we've mentioned. In the West, we don't live under an idolatrous empire, 
but there are idolatrous elements in any and every society. Governments are redefining morality in areas like euthanasia, abortion, gender, and sexuality. In other words, this is the idea of how some governments may be wholly given over to the work of Satan, where all free speech, all religion is destroyed and despised. But then, as Chester says, there are elements that creep into other world governments and even Western governments. Where rather than allowing the Word of God to define these things which we have traditionally understood in terms of morality, like euthanasia, abortion, gender and sexuality, we're allowing the world then to define what these things are. And friends, that is the spirit of Antichrist. It's not to say that we have then the right to start pointing out, saying this person is Antichrist, or that person is Antichrist, or follow every new book that comes down the pike saying, here is Antichrist. But to say that the spirit of Antichrist, the spirit of the false prophet, that directs us away from the things of God, can be clearly seen in our world. That's how we then apply and think through a chapter like this. We don't trivialize it. We don't write it off as fundamentalism. But we say, we are, we, even a, any thinking person who has lived in the 20th century, who has had their eyes open in any way, would be able to see how these things are so. Where the things of God are replaced. During the French Revolution, times and seasons were replaced. The Christian observances of Easter and, and Christmas and all these things were replaced with the things that the, the, those leading the French Revolution were putting in place. In other words, to get rid of God whole scale by the state and replace it with something else. This is, I think, what Chester is getting at, and I think he's right on here. This leads into what he talks about here, finally, uh, when he talks about the mark of the beast. Also, it causes both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave to be marked on the right hand and the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. And his number is 666. Now what is this 666? Well, some people have tried to fit that in, take the name of someone, and say, well, how can we work this around if we take the Hebrew characters of this person's name and move this here and move that there? Ah, 666! It's gone from Henry Kissinger to Barney the Purple Dinosaur in terms of trying to identify who this is. The more popular has been Nero and different people that have come down through church history. And that, that, that is popular in every generation. I remember growing up, and one of one of the most uh, you know uh, uh, popular shows—well, not not popular shows—it was a movie 
I remember seeing was the, the Omen with Gregory Peck, and then, again it was a dramatization of what's here. You know, and the, this child born, and all of a sudden you see on its scalp six six six. You know, there's the mark of the beast, and so it got everybody thinking. Oh, I wonder, wonder if he's got the mark of the beast. And so maybe I'll do a little check check for lice, and while I'm doing that, I'll see if he's got. A little, a little tattoo there, or a mark, or whatever. And this is this is how people started to l let their minds go crazy with this. But we're not to expect an actual physical mark. Back in chapter seven, we saw that the people of God were sealed, right? They were sealed by God. Does that mean that every believer goes around with a seal on their head, saying, "I belong to God," or "I've been redeemed by the blood," or whatever? No, the mark is in their lives and how they respond, how they react. When God seals them, He seals them by His Spirit and blood. And so they obey. Here, the same is true. It's the again, the aping of God. It's the imitation of God. That just as God has a seal for His people, the devil also has a mark for His people. Those who follow Him, who reject God's way of salvation, who reject the way in God, which we understand the world and sexuality and God's law. That's why in the Old Testament, the people, when they were taught the law of God, said it, will, it shall be upon your forehead, upon your arm, and in your heart. God wasn't intending, as some went on to do, to put little boxes of Scripture on their head and wrap them around their arm. It, it said it should be in your mind. It should lead into the practical outworking of the law of God. Well, if this mark 666 is upon the people of the world, that means that they've bought into the ways of the power of darkness. They've allowed government, they've allowed human institutions to define their purpose, their salvation, their direction, their prosperity, Everything then comes from every, anything but God. And so, the, the number 666. If 7 is the perfect number, which describes Jesus, 6 is the number that describes the devil. He falls short. He is incomplete. He doesn't for all his boasting, for all his signs and wonders, he comes short of true authority, true love, true salvation, true purpose. And so, the people of God understand that. This is this call calls for wisdom. Verse eighteen. This calls for wisdom, for understanding, for everyone who would understand. If seven. If we look to Jesus and God is saying, perfect love, perfect salvation, perfect authority, we look to the things of the world as saying, they fall short. They are imperfect. They are imposters. As much as they pretend to be something, they are nothing. And the world will try to dominate us in that way. Today in China, there is something called the social credit system. It's operating. It's real. It's there. That you get certain points if you 
attend here and don't attend there. You go to a church, you get your points knocked down. If you associate with this person or group, your, your points may go up or down depending on whether the government likes it or not. It's the social credit system. The government monitors your buying habits, your whereabouts, this, that, and the other. And Christians in China are seeking to stand up against that by defying the government, saying, we will worship the Lord Jesus Christ, come what may. Governments can seek to impose upon its people an understanding of reality that goes against God's Word. What is a man? What is a woman? And if you don't accept that, you can lose your job. Do you go along with the transgender revolution? And in spite of your eyes saying, that is a man, that is a woman, it, that doesn't matter. And you can lose your job. And so some will fly below this below the radar, say, I'll say what you want me to say, I'll believe what you want me to believe. If it goes against God's word, well, I'll make some kind of rearrangement in my mind, justification. But at the end of the day, the spirit of Antichrist is working because it is saying, this is what God's truth says. But to keep my job, I'll say that. Or to remain in this situation, or not to incur the wrath of the world, this is how I will behave and this is how I will think. This calls for wisdom. That's how this section ends. Just as the last section called said, here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. If the law of God was to, be, was to mark the forehead and the hands and the whole person of the believer, then the ways of the devil were to be a mark upon those who would follow after the Christ and the false prophet. To swallow his ways and say, I will believe and I will say what you want even if it defies my own eyes. I will do it. I will sign on the dotted line. And this is what, this is the culture that we're in. This is the air we're breathing, friends. This is why I say it's not a first century thing and it's not a 33 century thing. It's today. Because this, these empires, these principles, these motivations of the devil keep reasserting itself. And he's not going to sleep. He's not going to rest for a few centuries until, you know, until he finds a better time. No, it tells us he has come down to the earth with great fury because he knows his time is short. He's not resting. He's not going to wait until... 2220? He's saying he's busy now. And we need to be able to say, where am I seeing it? Where am I maybe following and, and submitting to that kind of thinking where I'm leaving the Word and the law and the ways of God aside to better get along in the world in which I live? And so John is telling us these things because these things are a present reality. And that's the word that he gives at the end of each section. And so Paul, he says, uh, at the end of Ephesians chapter 6, Finally, be strong in the Lord 
and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Is that just first century people? Is that people who live in the very last days of the earth? No, it's us. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness. Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. And so we must pray for God's grace to recognize, to have the wisdom, and to be ready to endure. God, give me the If you call me, Lord, to take a stand on Your Word and I have to suffer for it, Lord, help me to endure. Lord, help me to repent of any ways in which I might be imbibing the spirit of the age or the false prophet or the Antichrist. And help me, Lord, to recognize the true salvation that is found in Jesus Christ, not only who redeemed me of my sins, but has authority in my life today to open and close doors however He wants. And if it's to captivity, then to captivity He goes. If it is to be slain with the sword, with the sword He must be slain. Isn't that what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those three young men said, before Nebuchadnezzar, before they were thrown into the fiery furnace. We believe that God is able to save us from this furnace, but even if He doesn't, know this, O King, we will not serve your image. We will not perform false worship because we know the love of God. We know the goodness and the power of God. And so we, as Christians, we too say, Invading every aspect from business to education to every aspect of society. The false prophet is at work. Help me to know the truth. Help me to stand on the only way of salvation and find my purpose in Him. Let's pray.